BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. And on this Friday, last day of March, welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable. Uh, let me start out by sending you greetings from Rome, Italy, where I'm on a study program with the American Academy in Rome. And let me tell you, there's nothing quite like waking up in Rome to news that your former president has been indicted by a New York grand jury. Uh, it was clearly the shot heard around the world, and it's going to dominate the news today and for months to come with so many questions like, how much legal jeopardy is Donald Trump really in? With what possible consequences? What actually happens to him next? What's going to happen next Tuesday? What impact will all of this have on the 2024 campaign? And what other indictments might still follow? Well, we'll get into all of those questions with today's panel. Plus, uh, look at some other news of the week. Another mass shooting, this time in Nashville. Kevin McCarthy keeps demanding a meeting with President Biden on the debt ceiling, but he's yet to come up with any Republican budget plan. And after Bibi Netanyahu withdrew his controversial plan to gut the Israeli Supreme Court, relations between the United States and Israel appear to be at an all-time low. So here today to help us put it all in some kind of perspective, Linda Feldman, Washington Bureau Chief and White House Correspondent for Christian Science Monitor. Hi, Linda. Hi, Bill. Kirk Beto, editor of the National Journal Hotline and co-host of the National Journal Radio Journal Radio Podcast. Uh, hi, Kirk. More, Bill. Thanks for having me. And John Bennett, editor at large, CQ Roll Call, and writer for the CQ Afternoon Briefing. Thanks, Bill. Good to be here. Okay, you know, look, we got to admit this is. It's impossible to exaggerate the significance of what happened last night with this indictment. Um, a former president of the United States called to surrender to law enforcement agencies. No generation of journalists has ever had to deal with a story like this, an event like this, and probably never will again in our lifetime. Um, so how do we get our arms around? I think I just like to ask each of you to start with, you know, how did you react to this news as a journalist? What what is it? What does it mean overall to you? Linda, start us off. Well, it it was a shock. I mean, we knew this was coming, or we thought we knew this was coming because Donald Trump had given us a heads up. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so then, so then the question was: so, so a couple of things. One, there you're never sure that an indictment is coming until the grand jury actually does the deed. So there was, it was never a hundred percent sure. We were pretty sure it would happen. Uh, and then, then the question was, when would it happen? And we had heard last, we had heard the grand jury was going to basically take the month of April off. So we all could sit back and focus on other very important news going on. And then boom, indictment. So yes, we all sprang to action. We all canceled plans. Uh, it's it's huge. Uh, it, it drowns out other important news, and uh, you know, buckle up. It's this is Donald Trump. It's the first time an American former American president has ever been indicted. Uh, it's 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 we 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 can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. This is it's a new day in Washington and in the country and in the world. Uh, yeah, Kirk. Just to think that you know. In, in all of us, the thousands and thousands of people in journalism, right, over the years covering the White House, covering the Congress, nothing like this has ever happened before. No, it really hasn't. To Linda's point, we sprang that. I had to run back to the uh, the newsroom from the uh, the ballpark yesterday on opening day to uh, oh. start getting our stories all together and everything. But you're right, Bill. And, you know, this whole cycle really kicked off, like Linda said, when Trump 
dropped the bombshell about a week and a half ago on a Saturday that he would be arrested and indicted on a Tuesday. Obviously, that didn't happen the first time, but it was kind of almost a throwback to those mornings where you would wake up, open up Twitter, and see what then-President Trump had tweeted the night before and see what would be driving the news that day. You know, I remember clearly in, you know, 2017, 2018 or so where he said that the Obama administration had been spying on him and that sent all of us off or that he had been talking with uh, the North Korean leader and we had to figure out what was going on there. It it had almost a throwback to those days of the Trump presidency, those chaotic days of the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. But this is an entirely different animal entirely. This is, you know, so many competing narratives here, so many incredible and unprecedented implications right now. And I think as journalists right now, especially political journalists, the way I've been approaching it and the way our reporters have been approaching it is to kind of put this one Trump legal story in kind of the larger picture of Trump. You know, he's the twice impeached former president. For decades, he's his personal and business dealings have been under the legal microscope. He's had a few close calls, but this is the first time he's ever faced uh, a charge as serious as this to raise to an indictment. And so I think the best way that we can serve our readers right now is not speculating so much on how this affects his standing in the presidential race or anything like that, at least for now, as we're you know just a few hours removed from it, but looking at the totality of Trump's long history with the law. Mm-hmm. So, Linda, as you said, we sort of knew this was coming. Perhaps we weren't sure which shoe was going to drop first, right? New York or Georgia or the DOJ. But I, I must admit, I was surprised by over 30 counts, right. apparently. That's what CNN is reporting. Mm-hmm. What do we know about why so many counts, how serious, how serious are they, and what they in, uh, entail, or do we? So we, we haven't seen the indictment yet. It hasn't been unsealed. So uh, we don't know for sure what's in there. But my understanding, and I think this is from the CNN report, uh, which is that 11 of those counts are the 11 payments that Michael Cohen mm-hmm. made to Stormy Daniels. Mm-hmm. So the number of counts in an, in an indictment is not necessarily an indicator of how serious the level of serious legal trouble the president is in. Um, it's just how indictments are written. So uh, we, you know, in terms of what this is all about, it's it's about the hush hush money payments to Stormy Daniels, with whom he had an alleged affair, or at least a one night stand. I'm not sure what the story is there. But uh, it's, it's all, it all hinges on what's being called a novel legal theory. It's, uh, it's a a campaign uh, violation, which would normally be a matter of local jurisdiction, um, but is being bootstrapped up to a felony. And it's, among all the legal troubles that Trump faces, this is seen as actually the weakest case. And so even for people who would love to see Donald Trump behind bars, this is not a source of joy necessarily. Um, I mean, as I was walking home yesterday evening, walking through DuPont Circle, I, I it's everybody, I mean, this immediately reached the, the, the news uh, bloodstream of, of Americans. Now, mind you, I'm in, deep inside the Beltway. Everybody in Washington is is all over this, walked past an outdoor cafe, a group of men sitting around saying it's, you know, that this is, this is, that the Trump base is not going to buy this. It will just rile them up. And this is just a group of men who uh, were just hanging out, having an evening out. So this is, this is where the thinking is about this issue that yes, this is Donald Trump, quote unquote, finally, uh, facing the music legally, but not the best case. Not the best case, but Kirk, this could, if it's a, if he is found guilty of a felony, it could mean time in prison, couldn't it? It could potentially. And again, I, I don't want to speculate too much. You know, I did right. take the LSAT before I went into journalism, and that's about the extent of my legal knowledge here and everything. But you know, it to Linda's point, it could rile up. Trump's base right now if uh, Trump turns around and beats this case for whatever reason. It is an opportunity, yes, for Trump to exploit this. He's already 
going back in and playing the victim here. I think I got five fundraising emails from his uh, camp last night and everything, talking about how the deep state's coming for him. And one thing that Trump has been really adept at uh, since he first came, first launched his presidential campaign in 2015, is really turning this sort of victimization and making it a little bit more universal to his supporters that they're not doing this to me they're doing this to you and turning that into you know uh political power uh fundraising power and he's really able to turn the attacks on their heads it's almost kind of like how it felt like the highest moment in his presidency was after he was impeached the mm-hmm. first time but he mm-hmm. the senate failed to convict him uh, and he felt like even if he was impeached, it was a little bit of a looser charge or something like that. Like that February, right before COVID really hit, it felt like he had the most power. And I think you see that in how his would-be challengers in the presidential primary are all basically parroting his calls that this is a witch hunt right now without having to see – without actually seeing what's in the sealed indictment. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, Kirk, uh, your um, caution, I think about speculating on the political um, side of this or the political impact of this indictment um, is well taken. But of course, it's already been ignored (laughs) by most of Trump supporters, Uh, starting with Lindsey Graham. uh, As the Senate ran for the airport, Lindsey Graham ran to a TV camera, surprise, surprise, uh, on Sean Hannity last night, talking about how they could possibly get up to 30 indictments. Well, if, if you got a pile of crap and you chop it up 34 times, it's still a pile of crap. It's duplicious charging. They're trying to smear the guy. They're trying to take cases that nobody else would take and resurrect them. This is literally legal voodoo. So, Linda, <laughs> uh, with various uh, uh, shades of color, right? Uh, mm-hmm. He's not the only Republican last night who, who lashed out, not to, or came out not to defend I mean, to defend Trump, but to right. really more to attack Alvin Bragg and the whole process. Absolutely. No, I mean, the, the Republicans circled the wagons immediately. You had Ron DeSantis, the top challenger to Trump for the 2024 nomination, said that if if called upon, he would not extradite Trump to New York. Now, that has been rendered moot because Trump is going to voluntarily turn himself in on Tuesday uh, for arraignment and for the unsealing, the arraignment, the uh, the fingerprinting. We know he didn't want to be fingerprinted, so that that's uh, that's going to happen. Um, but I just want to point out on this issue of, of in, the possibility that Trump could face prison, even though there are thirty counts in this indict, indictment reportedly. If if he were ultimately convicted, and that's a big if, mm-hmm. he would face a maximum sentence of four years. And then, and also, prison time would not be mandatory. So this this is not. I, I think it's safe to bet that t- Donald Trump is not going to wind up behind bars over mm-hmm. uh, illegal, allegedly illegal uh, hush payments to a porn star. Okay, that gets us to the question, however, which is, uh, and I think both of you pointed this out earlier. Um, Kirk, let me let me come to you that this is hardly the only um, possible indictment, now now real, but the only uh, possibility that Donald Trump has for being indicted. There is Georgia, and there are two cases in front of the Department of Justice, both of whom are more serious. Right. And you know, when Trump wasn't arrested, like as he uh, falsely predicted on that Tuesday, you had a series of stories talking about how you know they might be getting a little cold feet on this New York case. How you know, like what we've been saying, it is one of the, the of the three mounting legal problems Trump's facing. This might be the weaker one or the one that could fall apart if it gets really under scrutiny. But the cases in Georgia in front of the DOJ all stem from Trump's efforts to overturn the election, um, allegedly you know, inciting the insurrection, kind of an outgrowth of what we saw during the January 6th hearings here. And those are seen as much stronger, much more serious cases. Uh, the Fulton County down in Georgia, the DA there is uh, still investigating Trump, and I believe that uh, they might have some sort of uh, charges, uh, not too terribly soon, but sometime before uh, presidential election. But I just want us to pause for a second here and talk about how we're talking right now. We're like kind yeah. of power ranking the legal problems facing a 
former president and a current front runner for the Republican presidential nomination. That's just so far beyond anything that we've had to deal with before in American politics. And this is just, we are really pushing new boundaries here, that this is just a, a wild time. Uh, absolutely. And thank you again for making that point. We should make it over and over again, right, during this podcast. So, so Linda, um, we've, we've, we've had the expected reaction, as you pointed out, from Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Lindsey Graham, all attacking the prosecutor. Um, what's the White House saying, Linda? The White House is saying absolutely nothing. I mean, they've been sitting around figuring out what to do. And, you know, the old saying in politics is when your enemy is destroying itself to just sit back and let it happen and not not interrupt the narrative. So they're, yeah, they have no comment. And they're, uh, I don't know that they're ha- happy that Trump is indicted, but it, uh, you know, it takes... It takes the spotlight off of Biden's woes. So we've been talking uh, so far with just Kirk Bader and, and Linda Feldman about uh, just as journalists dealing with something that no generation of journalists, no individual journalists, nobody has ever had to deal with before the indictment of a former president of the United States asked to surrender the front runner for the 2024 Republican nomination at this point. Uh, so, John, uh, Linda and Kirk, I asked them first just for their general reaction as reporters when they heard this news. Um, again, first journalist ever to, to hear news like this and have to deal with it and report on it. What was your take? What was your reaction when you heard the news? Well, my first reaction was uh, the grand jury uh, didn't want to come back in May. They, they wanted to go home. And, uh, you know, if those of us who have covered uh, court proceedings over the years. This happens sometimes uh, when a jury is up against a deadline or a break or a holiday, for instance, um, they they decide they would rather go home. So that was my my first cynical take was um, they're, they're just done with this guy and they see enough there uh, to recommend uh, charges and, and they don't want to have to come back in May. Um, so I uh, had a chuckle at that. And, and my, my second reaction was uh, that this is going to make Trump in, in a lot of conservative circles uh, even stronger, uh, at least in the primary, that this, this will probably help him in the primary. And we've seen in the last few weeks uh, since this indictment, since he floated his own arrest on Truth Social on a Saturday morning, um, uh, he's actually pulling away from Ron DeSantis. He's he's put distance between himself and the Republican pack. It's not like they're catching him. It's not like this has propelled DeSantis within, you know, 13 points or 10 points of Trump. And I expect he'll get another bump out of this. And he'll look even stronger when, you know, not the next round of polling, but probably the two rounds of polling uh, after that. And especially if we see him next week in a mugshot, um, I have my doubts if we'll see a perp walk in Manhattan, but uh, we'll definitely see a mugshot. We'll see a former president's fingerprints. We'll see the charging documents. But I think, um, you know, he might be, he's doubling up DeSantis right now in most polls. He could be up 35, 40 points Mm -hmm. by the time he, you know, sees the inside of a courtroom. Well, in fact, there was a Fox News poll yesterday in the Republican for the Republican primary. Uh, this is before the word of the indictment was out. But still, uh, with DeSantis out there, Nikki Haley out there, Mike Pence kind of sort of out there, um, the Fox News polls showed um, Kirk, uh, Trump at 54, uh, DeSantis at 24, 30 points over DeSantis. Um, Mike Pence at six and Nikki Haley at three. So it does seem the more legal trouble he's into, the more support he gets from Republican voters in a primary. I will be interested to see what that polling looks like now that the indictment is out and now that it's real and we go through this the, the process, the fingerprinting, the mud shots, all that, because you know th- those polls might be from a few weeks ago. But this comes right when DeSantis had a whole week of stories, probably two weeks of stories, all about his struggles right now to really scale his uh, Florida operation nationally. 
that he's had the walk back on his comments on Ukraine. He his book tour slash pre presidential campaign is struggling a little bit. That you know, poll after poll, like you said, has shown him so far behind uh, Trump. What I'm really interested in now is seeing the polls in a few weeks from now to see how this has impacted Trump's standing within the party. I think it was uh, NPR and PBS had a poll out uh, not about, I think it was earlier this week, that said that 87 per, uh, let me see here, I have it pulled up, uh, that 56% of voters said the investigation into Trump are fair right now. Of course, that is broken down pretty heavily favored toward Democrats. And I think John is absolutely right where he says that this sort of investigation, the more he's in the limelight and everything, really helps him in a presidential primary, especially when everybody else in the field is kind of parroting his talking points. It makes DeSantis look pretty weak when he's not even trying to differentiate himself from Trump anymore and just parroting the lines about how this is a witch hunt. But it could be costly in the general election then. And again, we it, these polls are so early. Iowa's still uh, at least you know, 10, 11 months away right now. It's way off, but it right now, it's still looking like Trump's the front runner, even as he faces this indictment. And, and so, Linda, uh, as we've dis- been discussing here, you've got all these either want to be or already declared or almost ready to declare people. You know, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, uh, Tim, Tim Scott, Ron DeSantis. They still don't take on Trump directly. Chris Christie says somebody's got to. They have not, and yet Trump has not stopped at all attacking people who might actually run against him, like Ron DeSantis. Here, here's an ad, this, this ad just dropped a day or so ago, by a super PAC supporting Donald Trump, an ad uh, about Ron DeSantis. Think you know Ron DeSantis? Think again. In Congress, DeSantis voted three separate times to cut Social Security. That's right, three times over three years. Worse, DeSantis voted to cut Medicare two times. DeSantis even voted to raise the retirement age to 70. The more you learn about DeSantis, the more you see he doesn't share our values. He's just not ready to be president. (laughs) Now, Linda, that's a lot of money and a lot of uh, pretty tough language against somebody who hasn't even declared. Right, exactly. No, I think the, the, the big question for Ron DeSantis is, when does he really take on Trump? So far, he's held back. Uh, everybody who's run against Trump before knows that when you take him on, he comes after you with all guns blazing and you lose. So Ron DeSantis, so the problem for him is that he knows what has happened to those who went before him, but he has to show that he's a fighter. Being a fighter is a big part of Donald Trump's brand. So uh, it's still early. I think it's too soon to know how any of this plays out. Um, but DeSantis, and DeSantis is not a declared candidate yet. So I think he can kind of hang back and play along and uh, let Trump take his shots. Eventually, he is going to have to fight back, assuming yeah. he does run. Although there is this theory that maybe he doesn't run now and runs in 28. I'm not sure. I think this is his moment to, to get in there. And that uh, there are some significant Republican strategists who have abandoned Trump and donors as well and have gone to DeSantis. So DeSantis has some mo- still has mojo, even though he's behind in the polls. And uh, I think we have to just let the, let the, the news of this indictment um, settle in and then, then we'll see where it goes. All right. The news of this indictment, which we've been talking about, believe it or not, and we'll see what happens next Tuesday, but believe it or not, there was some other news of the week. Let's take a quick break here on the Bill Press Spot. When we come back, we'll take a quick look at some of the other big stories of the week with today's panelist, uh, Linda Feldman, from the Christian Science Monitor, Kirk Bado, National Journal Hotline, and John Bennett from CQ Roll Call. We'll be right back. Today's podcast brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Yes, those good men and women, 1.3 million working men and women strong members of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. They service all of us in many, many different ways at our big retail stores like Nordstrom and Macy's. The people that take care of us at our great grocery chains like Safeway and Whole Foods. 
those on the front line in our meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants, and cannabis plants. We thank the men and women of the UFCW for their great work taking care of all of us Americans, and we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Go to their website, check it out at ufcw.org. You'll be amazed at all the good causes they're involved in. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back with today's podcast, today's Reporters Roundtable. John Bennett, editor-in-large, CQ Roll Call, and writer of the CQ Afternoon Briefing, joining us together with Kirk Beto, editor of the National Journal Hotline and co-host of the National Journal Radio Podcast, and Linda Feldman, Washington Bureau Chief, and White House correspondent of the Christian Science Monitor. Uh, Kirk, the week started with the news of, yet again, another mass shooting in the United States, this one in Nashville at a Christian school. Uh, Kirk, you started out your career in Nashville at the Tennessean. You know the community. You know the city. Um, How did this impact it? What do you hear from your friends there? It's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. I got my start uh, covering cops, actually, in uh, crime in uh, Nashville while I was in college. And when I saw the news on Monday, I was thinking about the reporters in the newsroom in the Tennessee and elsewhere around town who would just be sitting by the police scanner monitoring everything, and they get that code, and then they spring into action. I've been talking to a lot of my friends who are still in media down there at the TV stations at the Tennessee and everything, and it's devastating. They Some of them were at the reunification uh, spot on Monday as they watched parents and kids get reunited after they got evacuated from the schools. Uh, And now the fallout from that has just been uh, immense. The community is devastated. This is a uh, private Christian school right in the Green Hills area, about five, six miles outside the center of downtown. It's in the really quiet suburbs and everything. There's the up high-end Green Hills Mall right over there. I used to drive by that school to, during a cross-country practice, and I I know that area, I know the community, and it is still reeling from this violence. And people are wondering what comes next now. And this you've seen this week with the General Assembly in Nashville in session, protests like I have never seen before, thousands of people uh, filling up the legislative plaza uh, going into the state capitol. And, calling for gun restrictions, more gun reform. Uh, The GOP supermajority there has been reluctant and resistant, to say the least, for any sort of uh, changes. What I I think is different this time is how close this was as well. I don't know if you guys saw this week, but uh, Governor Bill Lee's wife was really good friends, actually, with one of the, the victims, one of the teachers at the school. In fact, they were set to get dinner together on Monday night, but she never made it that reservation. And I think there might be some opportunity for some change here now, just because it's so intimate, it's so close and everything, but it's just been absolutely devastating for this community in the state. Uh, and yet, John Bennett, uh, when eyes turned to Congress, 
we hear the congressman who represents that district, uh, that Christian school, uh, Congressman Tim Burchett. Uh, and this was his response to what Congress might do about um, any, any gun safety legislation. Three precious little kids lost their lives. It's a horrible, horrible situation. And we're not going to fix it. Criminals are going to be criminals. That's kind of what we expect to hear from Republicans in Congress, John, right? Well, uh, yeah, my reaction to that uh, earlier this week was, you know, at, at least someone finally said it. We can uh, debate um, until we're blue in the face whether, we, whether Congress and the president should do something. The president certainly wants to. Uh, I was on the Hill yesterday sharing my sinus infection with our elected officials. And I can tell you, um, there's no momentum, you know, even Dem Democrats are just kind of, you know, resigned that there's, there's, they don't have the votes to do anything, uh, additional, you know, they passed something last year. Uh, people call it a guns bill. I've, I've described it and what I've written is more as a, a mass shooting prevention attempt. Um, John Cornyn, who Mitch McConnell tapped as his lead negotiator for that bill, said multiple times this week that um, basically um, they've done what they can do and there's nothing else. In his view and in Republicans' view, uh, there's nothing more that, that Congress can or should do. And it, it's, it's not – Cornyn's a former whip, so he knows how to count votes. He's not saying – what we can do, meaning to get to 60 votes in the Senate, he's saying should do. He's mm -hmm. saying the federal government has no more role here. And that's kind of what Burchett was saying. Um, Burchett said, if we do anything, we'll just make it worse somehow. I'm not sure how three more dead children and, and three uh, dead adults at the Nashville school, I'm not sure how you can make that worse uh, in their family's eyes. But that's certain. That's where the Republicans are right now. Um, they're just, there's, there, it's not that they don't have the votes. They don't think there's a role for government to do anything. And Linda at the white house, the president, um, who has certainly been made, 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 a, uh, almost a religion of trying to get an assault weapons ban and, uh, mm -hmm. and background briefings and everything passed. He basically threw up his hands in the air this week, didn't he? And just say, look, I've done everything I can do now, you know. Nothing more I can do. Yeah, no, he's he's taken various executive actions. There was a modest new law that was passed last year um, offering incentives to local governments to set up red flag laws for that would flag people who are troubled like this person who sh who committed this terrible atrocity at the national school. Um, I mean, Biden, what he would like to do is an assault weapons ban. Uh, a ban on high-capacity magazines, uh, universal background checks. but So everybody's kind of throwing up their hands here, and it forces us as a society to look at the tougher issues. There's no, there's no quick fix here. Uh, there is no law that's going to stop somebody who's motivated to acquire such weapons and go and commit this terrible act, and I think that's where we are right now. And where we are right now also, Kirk, it seems to be, now that uh, Congress has gone on a two-week vacation uh, or Passover break or whatever you want to call it, um, we're at a standoff again over the debt ceiling and the national budget with Kevin McCarthy trying to arrange another meeting with Joe Biden. And Joe Biden says, well, send me your budget first so we know we have something to talk about. We've been down this road before, Kirk, right? <laughs> oh, uh, absolutely. You know, it's so interesting to see them get uh, sideline Kevin McCarthy a little bit more like all the time here when the initial negotiations were going on over what to do over the debt ceiling earlier this year, you know, the over the budget issues a little bit earlier. I believe they've had one meeting with McCarthy at the White House in February, and now McCarthy's going around uh, to every camera available and telling them that the White House won't meet with him over this looming budget crisis. And I think even before he became speaker, uh, if you're looking at like the big four leaders between the House and the Senate, McCarthy was always uh, four, ranked four of four on there. And <laughs> The, his prolonged uh, march 
to the speakership, the 15 roll call votes did nothing to inspire confidence that he has complete control over his uh, conference. So I think the White House is taking the approach of get your own house in order first, bring a proposal to us. We're not going to give you a little bit of a lifeline here. Uh, and so, John, John Bennett, if I'm the speaker and I want a meeting with the president of the United States, um, is this how you go about it? Here is Kevin McCarthy yesterday in his final comments on this issue. We have been reasonable, responsible, asked to sit down with the president for months. I don't know what more I can do and how easy. I would bring the lunch to the White House. I would make it soft food if that's what he wants. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Whatever it takes to me. This is diplomacy. This is <laughs> John. <laughs> wow, I was... Uh running around yesterday that's that's you're getting my uh, my first reaction to that i had not heard that uh wow soft food okay uh, can you imagine uh nancy pelosi or john boehner saying yeah. those words into a microphone with an audience that's uh that's hard i can't even i can't even imagine paul ryan uh saying those words about then president trump no that's not usually how speakers of the house operate um, and usually you don't bring lunch to the White House. They have a chef that, uh, <laughs> that will prepare lunch for you and the president in the president's uh, dining room where the last one may or may not have thrown ketchup against the wall. Um, so, no, that's not usually how speakers uh, get a meeting with the president. But this is a, a unique speakership. We saw the drama in January, of course, uh, play out kind of. Uh, in in real time on our televisions, but not really because uh, I was on the Hill and, and watching uh, conservative members and others go in and out of the, the speaker suite, which was operated, which was uh, occupied by Kevin McCarthy before he was even speaker. And we still don't know everything that the conservatives got as far as concessions mm -hmm. uh, in return for their right. votes that allowed him to eventually become speaker. So, he he has various constituencies and you know they call him the five families now uh in in the house republican conference and he has to he has to manage all five families and you heard the applause and the laughter uh there in the background of that clip so this does play as much as we might like i did furrow my brow and kind of try to understand why a speaker of the house is is almost begging to go to the white house but it plays and and people you know when he talks about soft food for the 80 year old president um that does play to the fox news crowd and he has to play to those people so we might not understand it but mccarthy knows what he's doing to a certain extent and he knows what he has to do and mm -hmm. you know we can say he's fourth and um, and he's the fourth among the four congressional leaders. But right now, he probably ranks higher than that because he's the one engaging in this back and forth with the president of the United States about a debt default. So I would put him no lower than second. I think just kind of by circumstance, he's higher than four right now. I do expect when Mitch McConnell gets back from his rehabilitation from his fall, uh, eventually Mitch is going to get involved in these debt ceiling talks. He's going to let, uh, the speaker and the president go back and forth, but, uh, McConnell does not want this to happen. So, uh, M Mitch is going to go to the white house and I guarantee you, Mitch will not be bringing lunch. I, I was going to say, I was, we'll see if Kevin McCarthy offers to bring a soft food lunch to Mitch McConnell. Right. Um, right. When he gets back, uh, Linda, while all this has been going on in Washington, the vice president has been in Africa, which uh, mm. seems to be a, certainly a very energetic, energetic, very busy tour of Africa, very successful, it seems. What is the White House reaction to it, um, to, to this trip, and how has it um, either helped or hurt Kamala Harris's standing uh, in the White House? Right. So the White House has been happy with that. This is an important trip. I'm not sure that it's its significance has penetrated the American mindset kind of outside the beltway. But Africa is a very important battleground for great power competition uh, between the U.S. and China. And this is, this is why she's there. 
And uh, but there's the larger issue of of Kamala Harris's political woes. She's often seen as a punchline. Uh, the White House is trying to help her overcome her problems uh, in in public perception and put her on a stage where she can succeed. She's been she was given early in the Biden administration. She was given some very tough assignments dealing with the border issue, not not to directly solve it, but to deal with the, the states that uh, are near Mexico. She, I think, has helped herself. Um, she's had some powerful moments uh, in, in countries that were uh, originally uh, produced people who were enslaved in the United States. Uh, it obviously shines a light on her role as the first uh, American vice president with with black heritage. And uh, if it didn't help her, at least it didn't hurt her. Yeah. Uh, and the reports from reporters along with her I was, were saying she seemed much more accessible, much more in command, much more comfortable with her with her with her role there. So before we move on to your favorite stories of the week, um, there's, I just want to get each of you. We talked a lot about Donald Trump in the first half of the podcast. Uh, as we know, Donald Trump is now, he's, he, he holds an occasional rally, and he's gotten into the practice of dropping these little videos with statements on issues that he wants to talk about, where he talks right into the camera and addresses what he thinks would be an important issue in the 2024 campaign. I don't know whether any of you have heard about this. I'd just like to, here's Donald Trump talking about how much he has done for American farmers. And uh, I'll give each of you who want to comment um, the challenge to tell me what the hell Donald Trump is talking about. Here he is. I made farmers happy and rich again. Someday it'll become time for them to leave this beautiful earth on the assumption that you love your children. You can leave it to them and they won't have to pay tax. But if you don't love your children so much, and there are some people that don't, and maybe deservedly so, it won't matter because, frankly, you don't have to leave them anything. Thank you very much. Have fun. <laughs> and if, 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 I, if I was Don Jr., I'd be paying attention a little bit to that last part, <laughs> just, just taking a little note of it. But that, those, those, are, those are my thoughts on that. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I, I think it's a reminder of just how funny Donald Trump can be. I mean, this is part of his brand. He's, he's, a, he's a performance artist. Do you think he was trying to be funny? Yes, I do. I think do he you? is. He's, okay. he's poking okay. He's Yes, he's I, being serious and funny at the same time. And that's, yeah. he's an entertainer. Uh, I, 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 <laughs> I think I disagree. But uh, I must say, hearing that clip and then hearing... Kevin McCarthy make fun sort of of the mental capacity of Joe Biden. I'm not sure. <laughs> How about you, John? What do you think? Well, that's uh, that's on what I, I uh, covered Trump for all four years. That's on the greatest hits, and that was a that's kind of a, a late uh, recording in his career to beat this metaphor to a pulp. Uh, but it made it. I, I put it on the greatest hits album. Uh, that showed up in his last year in office. Uh, they don't love your kids and deservedly so. Uh, but we all have that cousin, don't we? So uh, I'm sure someone might have popped into all of our minds uh, the first time we heard Trump say that in in 2020. You know, I don't. Yeah, we can speculate which kid, which child he's thinking about. Um, I'm I'm guessing it's not Tiffany. Uh, she she got herself through Georgetown Law School. Uh, so uh, I, I'm wondering if it's Don Jr. or Eric. I haven't decided. And again, this is a three-year-old line from him, and I still haven't uh, haven't quite decided which child of his that he's thinking of. But you know, he does. He has this dark uh, this dark side of his sense of humor. And Linda's right. He can be funny, but there's so much truth you know, lined into when he is funny that you, you just can't tell if, if he, if he's being flipped or if he's sending us a, a, a coded message. Yes. Well, and I don't, I don't, I didn't want to, I didn't mean to say that it's just funny, that it's, yeah. it's, it's serious. I mean, he's saying, he says very serious things, but he says them in such an over the top yeah, way. Right. You kind of can't help but laugh. Right. And, right. Right. So we're going to hear it again and again and again. Well, thank you so much, panelists, for making sense of a crazy, crazy week, which ended 
with uh, something uh, some of us knew might be coming, but never expected it to happen uh, yesterday. But now we're right in the middle of the first indictment of a former president of the United States for committing a crime, or possibly committing a crime, accused of, and the first indictment for the front runner for a, re- a nominate, presidential nominee. We'll be dealing with that for the months, months to come. Before we let you go, there uh, is always one story that kind of stops us in our tracks as journalists, whether we're covering it or not, serious or funny or sad or uh, something to chuckle about. We call it our favorite story of the week. Uh, who wants to start us off? Kirk, how about you? Great. Uh, you know, this has been a difficult uh, week with, you know, kicked off in Nashville and everything. Yeah. And now it ended with an indictment of a former president. But during the week, uh, a story that I really, really enjoyed was from Greg Miller at the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. It was, the headline is, he came to D.C. as a Brazilian student. The U.S. says he was a Russian spy and it's all about a a blown cover from a alleged uh gru operative from russia who was admitted to john hopkins university in their uh, international affairs graduate program went through the program got an internship in the hague but turns out oh he's a plant a alleged plant from russia who had been trying to gather information on uh, the United States. And what was so interesting is through all the uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, through the evidence that the uh, investigators who have compiled, compiled who uh, arrested this guy on fraud and espionage charges, it gave an incredible look at the Russian intelligence operations. Multiple times throughout the article, they compare it to the Americans, uh, the TV show about the uh, deep cover spies and everything. And I was just fascinated by it. It was like I was reading it like a John Le novel again, but in real life. There you go. Putin denied it, of course, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> he hasn't already, he will. Uh, thank you, Kirk. John, what caught your attention? Oh, sure. Uh, I'll keep the streak alive here and, and stick with sports, as I usually do in this segment, uh, Bill. I've been following closely, uh, not the local uh, fo- professional football team, the Washington Commanders, who may be sold. I've been following that too, but I've gotten really into the drama up 90 up I 95 with Baltimore Ravens quarterback, Lamar Jackson, a former he's only, there only been two players to unanimously win the most valuable player award. He he's one of them in 2019. Uh He is in a contract dispute with the Ravens. And they've, I will not try to explain the non-exclusive franchise tag that they've put on him, uh, but it does allow him to to talk to other teams about a potential uh, trade, and no one apparently has called Lamar Jackson. And the reason this is so fascinating is he is he is acting as his own agent. He has not hired uh, uh-huh. representation, mm-hmm. and no teams are calling him. Uh, this is an amazing player. Uh, he's led the league in passing. Now, he doesn't have a stellar playoff record, and and I suspect that's part of what's going on here. But also, uh, the owners, the C word is being floated, collusion, that the other owners uh, don't want to give him a, a, a big guaranteed contract for, you know, seven, eight years, uh, like the Cleveland Browns gave to Deshaun Watson. And so we have a former league MVP in his prime who can probably play six or seven more years if he stays healthy. And we hope he does because he's an amazing player, but in a quarterback league and the NFL has set itself up as a television show about quarterbacks as uh, commentator, Steve Zabin puts it. And here is one of the best ones. And as of right now, if he doesn't go back to the Ravens, he may sit out the next season, uh, and and then he can maybe go play wherever he wants. And and uh-huh. but he's going to lose a lot of money if he does that. It's just it's an amazing situation for this kind of quarterback in a quarterback league to not have a team essentially. Well, we thank you again for being the uh, sports commentator on the uh, Bill Press Pod. <laughs> John, as a Steelers fan, it's just a shame watching uh, the Ravens struggle like that. I mean, just a crying shame. Oh, sure. It just hurts, hurts me to watch. <laughs> I'm sure it does. <laughs> All right, Linda, time for you to weigh in with what caught your attention this week. 
No, first I want to thank John for for that because I, I'm actually a huge sports fan. Went to my first oh, DC United right. game last weekend. Um, in my next life, I'm going to be a sports reporter. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I, I don't want to end on a down note, but I think we have to put in a mention uh, for Evan Gershkovich of the Wall Street Journal, who was arrested yes. Uh, uh, yes. a few days ago uh, in Yekaterinburg in Russia. Uh, I This is horrible, horrible, horrible news. I think he's in for the long haul. If you look at what happened to Brittany Griner, yep. uh, I was a report, reporter in the old Soviet Union during the 1980s and in the early 90s before the Soviet Union broke up. This is very, very serious business. And even with all the, the, the Trump news is going to block the sun for days, weeks, and months to come. But we cannot forget about Evan uh, sitting in a prison in Russia. He's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. And there, the journal is doing everything it can. This, this issue dominated the White House briefing yesterday. And I just urge everyone uh, with a heart to to think about him and pray and uh you know god bless him i i just hope this ends quickly but i, I, I don't think it will yeah i'm so glad you, you raised that it was a just frightening frightening story uh yeah. this week uh and for my own part my favorite story of the week uh and again i'm coming to you from rome but this news made it all the way to rome it's a story about a rare beetle that was, yes, an insect, a rare beetle that was rediscovered in California, in Northern California, after 55 years. Uh, the news is it was re rediscovered on the ranch near Williams, California, that belongs to former Governor Jerry Brown, who had allowed entomologists and geologists to um, do some exploration on his property. They discovered, rediscovered this beetle, and now the big news is they have named it after Jerry Brown, <laughs> and this beetle will be for, beetle will be forever known now in Latin, Bembitterin brownorum, Bembitterin brownorum. All I've got to say to someone who once worked for Jerry Brown that uh, there's no one better on this planet than reinventing themselves. I mean, Jerry Brown was Secretary of State for four years, Governor for eight years mayor of Oakland for four years, attorney general of California for four years, and then governor of California for another eight years. And now at the young age of 85, he has a beetle named after him. So you can only ask, what's next for Jerry Brown? <laughs> Who knows after that? And with that, thank you all. Thanks to our panelists, Linda Feldman from the Christian Science Monitor, John Bennett from CQ Roll Call and Kirk Beto from National Journal Hotline. Thanks so much, panelists, for taking a look at this week with us. And thank you all for joining us. Have a great weekend, and then come back and see us next Tuesday. We'll be here with the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Have a good weekend.